When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A government of, by, and for the people. It's very much alive, very much alive in America. Here, the people rule. Power can't be taken or asserted. It flows from the people. And it's their will that determines who will be the president of the United States and their will alone. So we are going to continue the lawsuit here. We're going to bring a second one, then we're going to bring a federal lawsuit, and we're going to take a very good look at whether we bring this nationally. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I keep saying this, but I refuse to be agitated or anxious or depressed. I refuse to be like, oh, I'm biting my nails and trying mango, eucalyptus, bath salts, and amethyst beads to lift my agitation. I refuse, in short, to look this gift horse in the mouth. By the way, and I know you know this, but when someone gives you a horse, like a gorgeous, awesome sea biscuit, triple crowner, and you're like, wait, he has some periodontic problems with his incisors. No, no, no. Look instead at this gorgeous sea biscuit, triple crowner. Trump has no way to win, and Biden has all the ways. He might even have been declared winner by the time we close out this episode, this homestretch episode of the tedious series called Donald Trump and the epic, epochal, world historical series called Trumpcast. See, I'm feeling gloaty and like manly, like a soccer thug. Guys, we've got no problems here on Trumpcast. We're not sweating the Senate. We're not even sweating the freaky knots of blank-eyed Trumpites with death on their brains and half a raisin for a heart. We're not sweating these stupid legal battles that Trump has drummed up to sue what? Sue uh, the ballots, every single person who voted against him. You know what? Go with Q, my confused countrymen. You are disqualified. Best of all, with the way things look now, we at Trumpcast are savoring this awesome coalition that worked so hard on the Biden campaign. Democrats together in not disarray, but glorious array to meet an urgent goal, throw out a corrupt government. Now, I'm thinking of a way to brand this coalition. Ugh, branding. It's so hard, right? Okay, for now, let's just call the coalition the majority of Americans. That's right. We the people have this. So today on The People Cast, I bring you Echo Yanka. Echo is a friend of mine and a friend of this podcast. And because I've already recorded the interview, I have to tell you in advance that he starts out like any good liberal feeling sort of ambivalent about the way the election is going and what would happen with the Biden presidency. But I brought him out of the gloom. See for yourself. Echo might, might, might even be feeling what he calls champagne now. And along the way, he convinced me of a thing or two. So, 
I'm trying to be more of a winning soccer hooligan and not an anxious, stammery pundit here. And here's what I got. Ole, 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 ole. Echo Yanka is a professor of law at the Cardozo School of Law. Election law and jurisprudence are just some of his areas of expertise. Echo, welcome back to Trumpcast. It's such a pleasure to be back. I thought we would talk today about um, gluten or the Ottoman Empire, both those topics. I'm just like, you know, we got, it's a slow news week. I I agree. You know, nothing's happening, but hopefully we can (laughs) fill some content. Yes, exactly. All right. I also want to start out by saying I cannot believe you are followed on Twitter by Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner, who I think may become the man of the hour. It is. He is uh, at the center of. Yeah. You know, it was eight years ago. I was in Cleveland doing some poll watching um, and I had that feeling I was in the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections building. And it was a very strange feeling to know that you're in the building that will elect the president of the United States, so to speak. And Larry yes. Krasner is, he, he knows that feeling now, I think. And did you know that at the time? Yeah, we, we knew given the electoral map that if Ohio, I mean, let's put it this way. We knew that it was the building that could elect the president. If Ohio went blue for Obama, this was Obama's reelection, that, yeah. uh, that it would be over. And when we started hearing, we knew. So yeah, and Larry, like you say, there are a few people right now in four or five states who are the center of the the eye of the storm, right? It's just like, yeah, we get these, we get like these famous people that flash on our screens whenever it comes down to the counties, whenever it's in elections, and you start to get obsessed with them. I will say before we move on that I wanted to find out a little more about Larry Krasner because he's such a terrific rhetorician. And this was before he said, I think he said today right? It's like a lasagna of lies that Trump is making with many, many layers. Lasagna of lies is a great expression. But also he had said, he sounds, he's quite far to the left and he had sounded almost warlike when he said, you know, basically come down to us in the birthplace of liberty in Philadelphia and we'll like bring I think he said, we'll bring the 1700s to you. <laughs> like, and I was just like, God, this is good. <laughs> that is, that's a sensational set of lines. One thing more, because it's between us. You know that you know who put him basically in office when he couldn't get a, elected? $1.5 million soared in from George Soros. Oh, so well, he's there you the go. one person actually, you know, who gets a Soros paycheck. Yeah, he's the proof of the of the vague conspiracies, right? I mean, <laughs> no other data points but him. Yeah. I will say that, you know, as terrifying as this is, and I know that as we're speaking, we might get breaking news, so I want to be a bit careful. As many hacks as there are out there, and as disappointed as I have been, as you know, over our inability to see certain aspects of Trumpism, the cruelty, or either our inability to see it or to reject it, to repudiate it. Yeah. I do think... There is a moment now where you see perfectly ordinary people, the ones who are not the DA of Philadelphia, right? The ones who are not going to get a huge amount of attention, mm-hmm. who are like totally, you know, so to speak, they will not be remembered by history. Mm-hmm. And they're their job. They're counting votes, even votes they don't want to. Even, you know, there's some election official in the middle of Nevada who will never, ever know who is just doing his job, doing her job. Um, mm-hmm. Those are... We need a few bright spots in these moments, and so those are bright spots. Yeah. Well, it's funny because 
I sort of stopped thinking that this is a time that we need scented candles and self-care and more started thinking that we need some of that, like what it feels like to begin to imagine the relief of this boot on our throat or put better in more robust Republican terms to like spike the football a little bit. Like, holy shit, we might have a new president, you know? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I do think there's, so I'm deeply torn. I know this is one of the things that you and I want to think about together. I'm deeply torn, right? So the Biden win is obviously better than the plummet we've been on. Yeah. And still, I had a friend who said, you know, I'm putting, uh, this was election night, said I'm putting champagne in the fridge. And I realized I just couldn't do that. There's nothing about the Biden win that felt champagne-y to me, to use the technical term, champagne-y. Yes. I have less the spike the football feeling and more the roll up the sleeves feeling. I feel like there's just a huge amount of work ahead, a lot of repair to do with the world, and a huge amount of repair to do with each other. Trumpism isn't going away. The legitimate grievances of Trumpism aren't going away, but also Mm -hmm. the ugly, seductive underbelly that he's just served up over and over is not going away. So that's where I am. I mean, okay. I qualifiedly agree with you, but I've actually, my instinct is to think, is to write one of those Tom Nichols kind of essays that's like, whatever the outcome, the problem exists, right? But I've been trying to kind of change my attitude toward are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Whatever the outcome, like we couldn't have dreamed of this happen. I mean, not we couldn't have dreamed of, but we've been living for four years in this heavy allopathic load of pain. Yes. And, and, you know, there's a chance now that we might bring the CDC back and contain the virus. There's a chance now that, some, you know, a look will be given at criminal justice reform. There's a chance that we won't have a bona fide rapist in office. Like, yeah. what? I mean, are we are these supposed to be just like, oh, small movements that 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 don't do anything? You know, I don't know. I think. No, look, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I, you know, if we're going to think about the hero quotes, right? For all his problems, the Winston Churchill quote, this this may not be the end. This isn't even the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. Yeah. We we shouldn't lose that part of that. Part of that quote is still, it's the end of the beginning, right? I mean, it's sure a hell of a lot better than losing Great Britain to Germany, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's that's right. not to be overlooked. I agree. Look, I mean, the damage, four more years is unimaginable amounts of damage and symbolic cruelty. And you know what? Everything else, too, just unbelievable amount of suffocation. I mean, just the inability of this president to ever not be on our minds. It's just too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the suffocation seems like the right word. And it's, I mean, it maybe is just poignant that the disease that's still stalking us affects our lungs, you know, and that I can't breathe is a sign um, that you see a Black Lives Matter protest that there's just is a feeling that, yes, the life is being squeezed out of us. Even the phrase, don't give him, a, don't give him oxygen. Yeah. You know, I resolve not to give him oxygen and then I give him literally my breath. You know, and I just, I don't think Biden will demand that of us. And I also, I think this is just, is a soft revolution. I really do. I think he has a mandate if mandate comes from the popular vote. Yes, it's it's another great point. 
Yeah. He got more votes than any person, any American in human history, any American president in human history. And he seems to be, uh, you know, who knows, but I'm just going to, whatever, I'm going to throw caution to the wind. It looks like he might get a kind of mini modest Biden-sized landslide out of this. No, I, I think that's right. Look, it's a great point that we can talk about this election with such incredible precision. You know, what's the DA of Pennsylvania doing without right. hardly noticing that Biden will have won by somewhere between four and five million votes? Now, you know, to my mind, that's not nearly enough, but it's a really, you, we cannot, you're absolutely right. That is, that is important. And there's this great irony, right? We're on Trump cast speaking about how we shouldn't give him oxygen. And we're all aware of this irony. We're all aware. You know, like, like I want my kids to be educated citizens. I appreciate that they care about politics. I also Mm -hmm. don't want my kids to talk about Trump this much. It's too much. Yeah, it's too much. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I may have mentioned this on the show before. It's a little bit name-droppy, but since you're on the show the ultimate name, this won't really matter. But anyway, Malcolm, I did this project where I was basically carrying water from Malcolm Gladwell. So uh, this is not me as his equal. But anyway, we were on I've been, set. I've been told that he drops your name all the time. Oh, good. Okay. That's good. That's good. So we walked to, we were doing this thing with Masterclass where he was, anyway, and it's it was a film set. And we walked on to the film set and the executive producer came out. She's a black woman in her 50s. And she led us back to the set and every single person on it was black. Mm. And I just said, I just, you know, it was just striking. It's a Hollywood set, right? And I don't even know what to do with it. And Malcolm just looked at me and said, change the leader. Yeah. You know, you change the leader and then she hires people she's comfortable with and she knows and she went to college with same way everybody does. And people that do the job and people who, you know, do the job the way she understands it, the way sometimes I'm like, just working with women's easier. You know, it's just like they read to me. I get them. And then everything changes. And we've like, we're in the process of changing the leader. It's like our mom finally divorced the guy that's been (laughs) hitting our heads against the wall and pushing us down the stairs. And we're like, I think this, you know, this pretty good guy that's going to like support us and hang out. eh, He's not as great as someone I imagined to be our awesome father. Um, I mean, I don't know. So I want to, so, so I want to talk about that a little bit, but I also, because this is, you know, where you live. I want to talk about this ludicrous, I don't know what it's called. Voter suppression isn't, isn't voter, I don't know, what, like voter annihilation? 
Yeah. Something like that that's going on right now. At least we will never have to persuade anyone again that there is voter suppression. Right. I mean, so as you know, I've worked in voting rights for a long, long time now. You know, we I, I was at one point uh, a co-chair of one of the large Democratic voter rights organizations in New York yep. connected to the DNC. I may not have mentioned this to you. This is very boring. This is the kind of boring, glamour stuff that uh, impresses people like my wife and nobody else. But I now have been appointed to the New York Board of Elections to work on public finance reform. Ooh, I am uh, impressed. I oh, mean, it's, it's re- no, it's no walking somewhere with Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> no, <but. laughs> it certainly is not. No, I mean I cannot tell you how many people want to sit next to me at a cocktail party to talk public <laughs> campaign finance reform. So you know, I have thought and worked on this stuff for so so many years, and the amazing thing is. Sadly, there are we still are going to have to talk to people about voter suppression. There's still going to be people who don't see it. But here's the thing that blows me away, Virginia. Here's the thing I just can't get over. Even if you ignored voter suppression, if you take our boring median, it is unacceptable. It is just unacceptable that, that we we talked. You know, there are all these tweets going out about I've been waiting. Bill De Blasio waited three hours line to vote in the presidential election and for a few down ballot. And, you know, the news followed him. It's kind of an easy news story, right? And uh, he said, if these people can wait in line, um, so can I. And that's a nice sort of clip for a mayor to say. How about this other clip? This is insane. Why are people waiting? You know, my friends in other countries just think this is absurd. Nobody should wait in line four hours to vote. It's just crazy. I'm going on too long, but my core point is, look, we know what voter suppression looks like. We know what communities people don't want to vote. We, you know, there's not been enough coverage of people invading polling places, people going down to Detroit, you know, white people driving into Detroit to chant at uh, boards of elections, stop the counting, right? Mm -hmm. And those people don't think they're being racist at all, as though they would ever pick any other community to make such an absurd claim, like stop counting their votes and not see the history that's linked in with the long fight for African-American voting. It's so absurd. But even if I were to ignore all that, a country that cared more about voting would just devote long-term resources to this and just to solve this problem. And frankly, a country where we didn't have this history of voter suppression, where we didn't have the racism, a country that genuinely thought this is our collective voice, would have fixed this problem, right? Other countries have fixed this problem. You know, I keep, um, for some reason, Oscar Schindler, and by the way, whose whose legacy I only know from the Steven Spielberg movie, so don't think that I, like, read a biography. But the minor and kind of caricature of a theme of Schindler's List is that Schindler came to his politics realizing that he needed more Jews to keep working in his factory, better to mm. keep them better. They were more useful to him, more more valuable, more more you know. They gave got him more money alive than dead, right? And sometimes I think that's the democratic position on on civil rights or on voting rights, which is like you you want the people to vote who vote for you. Yes. Now. The idea of enfranchisement because it's good for the collective or it's good or even good for your party is okay. Nobody needs to be motivated from like pure goodwill. You know, this I've quoted this before, but my professor Stephen Greenblatt used to say the only reason anyone tries to fathom each other's another person's mind or learn their language is to sell them something. 
So like, (laughs) right. So, I mean, it's like from the Silk Road and all the way up to like gay marriage, like, you know, I think it's pretty profound. But so I think Republicans know that, that like, you know, black voters are worth more to us with their votes not counted and black voters are worth more to Democrats with their votes counted. And that is how voting rights reads. Yeah in the kind of cynical understanding of it. Yeah, I agree with your diagnosis. And I I take it that neither of us are making a normative point, right? This is not the way it ought to be. Yeah, no. Look, look, one of the real complaints about that Black people have, and one of the rejections, it is not a large rejection statistically, but one of the deep rejections of the Black community of the Democratic Party is precisely what you're saying, right? That you show up when you need our votes. um, You are happy to talk to us every now and then in order to keep people in the fold, right? But are we centered? And, you know, or are we even centered, meaning the sentence, are we central to you, right? I mean, not everybody yeah. has centered, but are we centered? And I do think this election threatens to change that. I do think the Democratic Party is well aware that it is Black women in Georgia who are, you know, putting an entire election on their back. So I, I take your point. Can I just say that Stacey Abrams, if especially if these two Senate races uh, go our way, I feel like the only thing I can think of, and you can tell me if there's a race component to this, but the only thing I can think of is she simultaneously churned that state, I mean, simultaneously, single-handedly turned that state blue. Like, I think of her, like, flipping each county yeah. like it's like a p- huge piece of shale yes, or like yes. a tile on a fellow board, you know? And she's just like, I don't understand how she does it, and it, it's astounding, but she's just made the case like you do so clearly for the absurdism of this this thing and also... Not we need more black people voting for Democrats, but that we need to change the leadership. Just that yes. thing, the exact you know thing that Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you remember, but I had that experience with him. That he did, told did me, you know, you know Malcolm Gladwell? <laughs> yeah, you know he sells a lot of books. He's just <laughs> um, but you know change the leadership. Look, I mean there are a million people behind the the visible leaders, but you're absolutely right; these are visible leaders. Just two points on that, though. I mean, and I know. Some of my friends, especially my dear Democratic friends, will will be aghast when I say this. But can you imagine how much better it would be for the country if there was a healthy Republican Party that could fight for Black votes? I mean, they're certainly fighting for Hispanic votes. Yeah. It would be better for everybody, right? If the- I feel like you're not noticing Lil Wayne. Like, I ah, just, you're, <laughs> you're, you're not taking into account the huge constituency that is Lil Wayne. I'm not. Trying to turn down his years of dedicated political advocacy. I'm not. I'm not trying to <laughs> not see that, right? But I mean, and, and look, I know that there are black Republicans and black Republicans of good faith. But if their whole party could stop being Janice face, right? Could stop feeding, you know, yeah. racist and it, our country would be a better place, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the last thing on that on the selling people, I think that's yeah. such a powerful line. I do think there are moments where we have to really think about whether or not we care about our collective voice. You know, we had a moment like this in Hurricane Sandy, where close to the end of election, the hurricane hit. And I saw people across the aisle come together and change the election procedure, postpone and reschedule an election so that huge parts of New Jersey could vote that they knew were going to vote against them, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because they had to, at some point, you know, and I, I just don't, I'm so saddened that I don't see Republicans doing this. 
there's just no reasonable story about voter fraud. There just mm-hmm. isn't in the country. Right. And to not stare yourself in the mirror and say, I'm running, I believe in my policies more than anything, mm-hmm. but I'm going to take this to the people and then let them decide is, there's got to be a moment where it's not just, I mean, I've helped people vote who I knew were going to vote against my preferred candidate because at the end yeah. of the day, it's the thing we're supposed to do. The other way to think about the point that the only reason we try to understand other people is to sell them something is like, of course. I mean, that's where you get the Silk Road is that you learn other people's language. Obviously, you can learn a try a set of memes like the call to suburban women that, you know, black people are running over your neighborhoods, which, by the way, appears to have worked somewhat. But, you know, then you're. I hope, getting their language wrong. And so you try to learn it better. And in learning someone's language, and this is Greenblatt's point, you really do get sympathy because if you commit, right. right, if you commit to learning, so Kamala Harris learns a language to get ahead in California and become attorney general, and then she learns a senatorial idiom. But then people have to start learning her idiom. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And Stacey Abrams has done this so well. She's defined what a victory is and what it isn't, you know, by never conceding her election. And now she's set a new standard for how to do that. I think that's super interesting. I think you've got it exactly right. I think, you know, one of the stories of history over and over is how we let some people into some place because we have something to sell them, right? We need workers in this place. And, you know, we we let Mexican work, well, we take their land, then we let Mexican workers back in because we need them to. And then we look up one day and their children are among us, their grandchildren are among us. And those people, you know, the Ghanaians in Munich, the, um, the, the now some small mixed race group in South Korea, wherever. Somalis in Minnesota. You know, the Somalis in Minnesota, right? You know, you look up and once you learn their language, it turns out slowly and surely in some small ways, you become a part of them. Um, I know this, Virginia, I'm going to admit, because I am horrific at languages. I mean, it's, it's, it's really terrible. My wife speaks languages just elegantly, quickly. The one time, the one little language I speak is Spanish. We moved to Spain together for a brief time. You know, I don't often get to be a hero to my wife, who's smarter than I am. But this time I was going to be a hero, right? I was going to be the Spanish speaker. And she, two weeks in, her Spanish has eclipsed mine. (laughs) (laughs) But I say this all to say, as lovely as it's been, and as wonderful as people were to me, you understand that there's a way in which you will never know people if you don't learn their language. Yeah, yeah. And, And that's true across our political borders as well. Yep. So yeah, I very much agree with you there. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what we can go back to on the we're becoming like Trump or we're reactive or he stays in our brains is that Trump speaks one language. He speaks his particular idiom, which is very eccentric and strange, but he refuses to budge. I mean, he doesn't, there's no like ich bin ein Berliner moment with him when he meets Angela Merkel. It's just like, I just only hear my language. I don't hear anything that's not in it. You know, Michael Cohen says, Mr. Trump speaks in code. That code is something we've all tried to break our brains trying to understand. And it's taken on this cognitive load because almost everyone except Trump has a little bit of flexibility to hear each other's idioms. You know, you know, it's like a lot of American monolingual presidents, they negotiate in their own language and they expect the, the other head of state to negotiate in a second, third language. And this is definitely true of people in empire countries, but that has been, I mean, it's just 
Trump's even way of talking, his way of speech is just like gets in our heads. And I'll start to think, I've talked many times, I have a Trumpite neighbor, big Trumpite flags. And I will start thinking to myself, myself, I should go up to them and uh, punch them in the face. You know, do things that are not really in my arsenal. Right. But that (laughs) that I'm like, that's what Trumpites do, so I'm going to do it back, you know? No, it's insanity. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, let's let's go back to this legal battle because... It just, and and I guess we will continue to ar- have to argue the voter suppression exists. It's, you know, it's like, it's like something that needs to be constantly surfaced like any other, like patriarchy. So, yes. but it is pretty hard to miss right now when you're saying they're not just working the refs. They also are like basically putting guns at the head yeah. of some, you know, of some umpire and saying, you better not fucking play the replay. You know, no, that's, that's exactly right. right. Also, by the way, part of the insanity and maybe part of the thing that does reveal it, although this is probably for people who watch this stuff exactly like sport, yeah, is the sputtering, formless, incoherent anger. Right. So Rudy Giuliani actually has a law degree, right? An impressive law degree. He was an attorney. Uh, uh, he was an AGA and a mayor. And he gets on TV and he starts saying, we're going to sue. We're going to sue people. We're going to bring a nationwide lawsuit. We're going to and if you're a lawyer, you know, I'm, we all have our failings. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> if I were in his class, so to speak, or if I were interviewing him, I'd just raise my hand and say, what do you mean? Right? Those words are gibberish. Those are words that you say to impress like some girl at a party because you're just, yeah. spouting, I mean, I won't bore everybody, but you can bring a federal suit to have a nationwide injunction. This, this is just clearly not viable here, right? You can bring a suit on this case. You can bring a suit, but they're not saying anything. They're just they're spouting gibberish, yeah. right? And it's to your point of trying to work the ref. They're just, they're trying to throw as much ink in the water as possible, hoping that it's to the technical benefit, even when it's literally legal gibberish. Gary Kasparov can't stop thinking about him right now. I want to ask him what game he thinks Biden played. And I also want to talk to him about something I've thought about before, which is park chess versus uh, tournament chess. And I think... I really think Trump has always played park chess, which is just forced errors by intimidation. Like Ken's and Kasparov has said, and other tournament players have said that park chess players can beat people. You know, like it's surprising how much they can throw you off just by leaning forward and saying like, you got a pencil neck and you got whatever. And then you're suddenly spazzed out, but they can't beat you in the long run. No. And that you can't just saber rattle Giuliani, even Bill Barr. Like it just is, is like, keep your head in the game. Keep concentrating on those districts that are counting and they keep counting and keep your head down and play your long game and think eight moves ahead and don't care that he's telling you, you know, you're ugly and no one wants to have sex with you. Like it just, you know what I mean? But are we able to do that or is this really going to hang up some of the states in red tape? I mean, meaning Pennsylvania. There's really not much they can, I mean, they're, you know, oddly enough, there haven't been any serious irregularities. Look, if there's something to sue about, people will sue them. That's what we do nowadays. That's not a big deal. But the, yeah. sort, of, the sort of, we're wandering around spouting, we're going to sue every, you know, look, this is what Trump has done his whole life, right? Like, I'm going to sue. Yeah. I'm going to sue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And often the stakes have been small enough that the real reaction people have had is, go away, I'm never doing business with you again, right? Mm-hmm. But where the stakes are high, I mean, one kind of impressive thing that is striking to me, it's almost embarrassing for him, not that I would care, is how little most of the country's listening, right? Like the president I know. States, I know. about suing, and most people are like, yeah, let's see what happens with the votes. I mean, 
lots of people take lots of what he says seriously, but even Trump supporters have always treated him a bit like an avatar. I don't think Trump is a leader in the sense, you know, there's been so much conversation about Trump gaslighting America. It's not true, right? What Trump is brilliant at is choosing the things we want. Like any con man, it only works when they choose what you actually want. Uh, yes, yeah. And put it out in front of you, right? He's not leading us, he's revealing us. Yeah, that's right. And thus, when the power is about him, people actually, you know, of course, some grifters will care. I mean, he's hugely important to their grift, but you're not seeing most Americans follow the fact that the president of the United States is steadily trying to undermine an election. That's kind of weird, right? Yeah, it is weird. It is weird. And right. And I do, I think you're right that most people aren't taking him seriously. I mean, I know Twitter is, you know, a tiny slice of the population. On On the other hand, it's where Trump lives. And he's the one that said, what, stop the vote? Or he's been, you know, saying his crazy things. Or, you know, I claim Pennsylvania or whatever. I claim Pennsylvania. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, right. Like, you know, I mean, even Hitler, come on, we're allowed to invoke him now. Well, you know, had to have like a flag in Poland before, you know. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. So he claims Philadelphia and every single response was, really, I claim I'm 30. You know, and Idris Elba's my boyfriend. I saw one of them. Um, You know, I I claim I can turn invisible and have a robot friend. So I'm going to break some news now uh, since we're on the topic. I claim the world chess championship. Yeah, I give it to you. And I, yeah. in my power to give it to you, I give it to you. I really do like that you're considering most of that stuff noise. Do you think that Biden will end? Part of the reason I'm trying to frame Biden's victory as extremely shrewd and as the consequence of a great campaign is, one, I think Hillary's actual victory was the consequence of a great campaign. And it is absolutely crazy that we belatedly or like after the fact, because Trump eked out this win through voter suppression and in the Electoral College, decide that Hillary was a, quote, bad candidate. But let's say she he's better than Hillary as candidate because he it looks like he's going to win in the, the Electoral College also and by a nice hefty margin. And because he put Georgia in play and helped put Georgia in play because he helped put you know, Arizona in play because he, whatever he did, each thing from Clyburn and getting Clyburn on his side as a powerful ally in South Carolina, you know, we could say, oh, that's Clyburn's patronage and, you know, good for Clyburn. On the other hand, good for Biden, who apparently could lay low on those first, first three states and then bring South Carolina around and then absolutely commit to taking on a woman as a running mate to being a transitional president and to and ultimately became very clear he had to take on take a woman of color take a black woman as his running mate i mean those are shrewd moves you know and there's someone who's just for 50 years studied politics dc politics and his capacities there. You know, who could, and that being of service to Obama. Anyway, I'm trying to reframe the narrative of like Biden is Robert Kennedy had Robert Kennedy lived just like totally skilled, incredible, you know, like works every angle and also knew when the moment was for him, when hope and history rhymed. And I think that those are huge. And I mean, Arizona, like he got Cindy McCain maybe to like, you know, to turn all of that seems super, super interesting to me. And 
part of the reason I want to put it together is this is a legitimate president. We will not be in the dissonance of the last four years with a president who many of us believed was a president with an asterisk, who like a legitimacy crisis in the White House. And I'm not going to let these weirdo lawsuits and ref working put into question, lose, cost him his head of steam coming into the White House. I agree. I think in, you know, it's so dangerous to make predictions, especially when you're being recorded. But um, I think you'll probably see Pennsylvania settle well for Biden, and that will make um, the Electoral College look bigger. Frankly, I think um, this is a bit of a side note, but we would all be better served with better electoral maps that showed things by population, by city, because the view we have of Biden as the winner of the coast is just a mistake, right? It just yes. mistakens what the actual votes look like. So you're absolutely right that, you know, huge blue chunks like Arizona and Georgia help, if only visually, settle in our mind, right? Yes. I think there's a lot to that. The visual part is so so interesting about the map. And I it's felt in Colorado, map. I felt like we hadn't like fully said that out loud. It's uh, corrosive. You know? It's not yes. just a bad map. It's not just a misrepresented map. I think that map is actually doing damage in the American psyche, right? Yes. It makes it look like there are two Americas much more than they are. Look, I'm not, we're not denying that there are, you know, the Trump years have been a study in how we can hear things very differently back to your point about language. But but that map reinforces it in a way that's just false and bad for us. And to your point, that map undermines what Biden's actually done, right? It undermines that the redness of Montana is not what you think it is, right? I mean, the city matter and the cities have more people. And if you saw it by population, you would see an America that was jostling with itself. So the Biden shrewdness story, I don't think is totally wrong at all. And the Biden sort of seriousness study, the, the point about him, you know, working Georgia, I mean, Georgia and Arizona. And for a while, we were even in the heady moments, we thought Texas was a question. Right. And the unleashing, whether they just wanted to do it, or he like, really, truly activated each one of them to do it. Buttigieg on Fox. Yes, yes. Beto O'Rourke in Texas. Yes. You know, Stacey Abrams, who wasn't a primary foe, but Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Like, this is, I mean, you know, this has been pretty, and he dispatched Kamala Harris, or she went to Texas also. So those have been really extremely interesting to see. And I feel like we do so much analysis. Trump has also taught us that the only thing that matters is the posture and, you know, we might get back to politics being more interesting on a strategic level on really understanding the country. It's so hard to know how we're going to do this because the air is so toxic now. But one of the reasons I started by saying we need a world in which we talk less about the president, notwithstanding what we're doing now, is that we just we can't hear past the top note, right? I mean, yes, that's no it. fragrance is all top note. It's not healthy. And it look, I'm not pretending I know how to do it. It will take me some time too, right? I will have to figure out how to lick old wounds. But we're gonna have to we're gonna have to talk strategy. We're gonna have to talk real compromise. We're gonna have to, you know, we're gonna have to talk boring things like is Mitch McConnell who we are, right? He being yeah. as dangerous as any, you know. Can you really just hold a Senate gun to the head of a Senate as well and just not vote on judges for four years? You can't. I mean, I, I'm not going to like this, but I think it's possible that Mitch McConnell is in the range of strategists. Like, oh, like, clearly. The, oh, right? absolutely. And, you know, he's if we I, don't, I, by the way, 
I don't I really don't know anything about sports so much that I was like, like they do in England, spike the football. Then I <laughs> realized that they don't spike soccer balls. I don't know. But um but rugby. they uh, spike the rugby ball. They spike the rugby ball. Okay. But I mean, McConnell, I don't know. A, we, a long time ago we had a Republican operative on the show, Mark Ross, who told me everything he thought Harry Reid like all his diabolical, awesome ways. And just for people watching it, you know, obviously McConnell, for all he's odious to us, you know, is like one of those like, you know, horrible QBs who's still amazing because he, whatever, inflates, you know, steals plays. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Steals signs. And, you know, I wouldn't mind being back in there. I think it's like horrifying to imagine that he'll continue, he'll veto, you know, all the, uh, he'll veto all the, or won't let in anyone, any cabinet members. I mean, you know, but he's capable of it. I mean, that's the test, right? Yeah. I don't think McConnell is who we are, though. I think he's, he's like, he's a top note. He's such an ace for them. Yeah. Look, if academics have weaknesses, I include you because you're a rogue academic gone journalist. <laughs> if academics have a t- are too much into taking these long views, we're not quite pundits. We are necessary in one way, right? Mitch McConnell, you can't just play the game in front of you all the time. At some point, you have to take a step back and think of what not just what will history think of you, but what is the the whole project? If Obama had one, Obama had a couple of weaknesses, obviously more than a few, but but he was just so obviously sensitive for the most obvious reason in the world of how he would be measured by history, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And thus, there are just moves he was unwilling to make because it could actually be bad for the country, and you just don't see that in Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Right? I mean, the idea yeah. that you'll just not let never never just mind Merrick Garland the idea that you won't let judges be confirmed at all that you'll just I mean I you have yeah. to know that one day your opponents will be where you are too and I'm sure that applies to us Democrats in moments too and I'm sure we've had our blind spots and I'm sure but man with Trump out of the picture, so we're not getting hit in the face, it, like hit in the head all the time, and literally like having our immune systems taxed both literally. by the virus, yes, exactly, and by and by the constant stress. I I really am interested to see Biden and you know whoever he appoints show down with McConnell because now we have like we have. Now, like, we got a fight on our hands, you know, and it's going to look really, it's going to be interesting. And both of them have been in the Senate with him, right? Both both Harris and, and, and Biden. So that's going to be super interesting. And I know we're assuming that Biden's going to win and that's dangerous. But I also think it's dangerous not to take the W where we get it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And if it's they a, call, if w, they call yeah. Pencil- Pennsylvania... If they're they're claiming Pennsylvania when they clearly don't have it two minutes in, we don't have to like wait forever to say like, oh, maybe we eked out a victory here, you know? Yeah, it's it's also not the right narrative. I mean, to your point about Hillary, and that ties into it, there is a way in which, you know, there there are a bunch of different Hillary stories, right? One is that we misread whether she was a weak candidate. And that was also a way of misreading what Trumpism was really about, right? That it was much deeper. It wasn't just an unpopular candidate. It was, this stuff is deep. This is real. People feel disconnected. People want to blow up the system. We have, you know, frankly, we should have known some of that from Obama, right? People 
Hope and change is the much more elegant, positive version of what Trump was offering. Blow up the system. Yeah. The flip side is that you're absolutely right. We misread Hillary as uniquely mistaken or weak. I do think, and again, predictions are so dangerous. You know, Biden is going to do certain things that are going to make people tear their hair out, right? He's going to, like Obama, reach out and try to get some Republicans in, in cabinet positions or something like that. There's also this, there's going to be this interesting story about whether or not Biden is actually secretly more liberal than people think. Totally. Right? Yeah, I early mean, on gay marriage. And there have been some other signs that he's, you know, he definitely wants to, quote, expand Obamacare. And that looks like bringing down the age for social, you know, for Medicare and all those things. And, you know, I don't think I don't think Trump's wrong to think that he's like sidled up to AOC and, you know, or they have sidled up to him and that he's keeping them close in the fold. Look, he's no radical. We all know that. But I do think he has the ability to do things that are core democratic priorities, since we're using the pathological uh, analogies in just the right way, without raising the nation's antibodies to nearly the fever pitch. Yes, yes. Anything Obama did was met with hysterical antibodies. And when Biden says something like, let's expand Obamacare, of course, we'll still have the same fight. It's not like this will paper over all our political differences. But there won't be this hysterical idea that this weird Muslim is trying to take over healthcare or something weird like that. Echo Yanka is a professor of law at the Cardozo School of Law. Thanks so much for being here, Echo. I will join anytime you invite me. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Don't spiral. This is a good time. Come find us on Twitter and celebrate. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before you go, Remember to sign up for Slate Plus. Your support is pivotal on a week like this, and it gives us the momentum we need for the Trumpcast sequel. It's only $35 for the first year. You'll get tons of digital perks and all of our shows without ads. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.